When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abu Al Samad, and we have another special guest with us tonight. It's Mr. Pete Bigelow from Car Driver Magazine. To uh, be here, guys. Thank you for having me tonight. It's, uh, it's yet another Autoblog alumnus here on the show this week. I feel like that club is bigger than the actual amount of staff at Autoblog right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's there's a bit of a diaspora from Autoblog. Well, it's been around it a while. It is fantastic that we're all from the, the Autoblog family tree, so to speak. And uh, good to see where everybody has, has wound up. Yeah, it's really cool. Some of us have done a lot better than others. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I count myself as the, the others. <laughs> Uh, uh, hey, you're gainfully employed. Yeah. You're paying your bills, right? That's true. That's true. I, look, I I never got to sit at the right hand of Brock Yates or uh, even Chapachetta like I wanted to when I was like 12, and I'm I'm okay with that now. <laughs> you gotten well, over it? Yeah. So well, uh, even Pete, even Pete doesn't get to sit with Chuba anymore. I mean, that's did, true. I, was Chuba, when you started, was Chuba still there, or had yeah. he already moved to Colorado? He had already uh, left the office at that point, and and I have I have not unfortunately even had an opportunity to meet him yet. Oh, really? That's too bad. He's he's pretty cool. I like Chuba. Well, I, I'll have to reach out and uh, you know next time I'm out skiing in Colorado or something, maybe we can arrange a uh, a meeting. You should definitely do that. All right, I'll take that advice. All right. Well, uh, laments aside, we're going to start with what we're driving. And Sam, what are you in this week? Uh, I just turned back the uh, 2018 Kia Stinger GT with the twin turbo 3.3 liter V6, and damn, that's a good car. Was, you know, I was going to underplay it and say everything I've heard about that car is that it's just it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody well, you've clearly been talking to the wrong no, people. Ev- have no clue what they're talking about. The the automotive world is on fire about how good the Stinger is, and so why did you find it that way? Well, first of all, it has a real name, and it's a cool name. You know, I mean, it's a sports sedan, and they called it Stinger. Yeah, it should be better than that. None none of this alphanumeric nonsense. Uh, Okay, I I don't know. I mean, it it sounds like there's like, I don't know. The the name is a little hyperbolic for me. It's kind of like, you know, Stinger, Super B, like. I I don't know. I can go I can go both ways on the names. I'm kind of like. Yeah, but in a world of Q60s and CT6s and RLXs, Stinger's cool. That's true. Uh, we, 
I think for the general, you know, automotive populace out there, I, I tend to agree with Sam and and perhaps Dan. I, I would agree with you a little bit on the, you know, for those of us who pay attention to such things, it sounds a little too much like Stingray. So mm. perhaps they could have been more That's original. Like that. Yeah. Well, you know, last week was a pretty good example of the alphanumeric sort of tripping us all up. I could not figure out the Infinity model lineup at all. <laughs> <laughs> like which which cars were I knew the old the old ones but I I don't they've changed everything so uh it's hard to keep up with so I, I guess you know it's it's a name it's a memorable name that's fine but it sounds like the car itself is actually that much more memorable yeah I mean it's it's really good to drive you know I I like the size of it um you know especially you know if you want something that's going to be fun to drive but can also still accommodate a family uh the back seats are are you know r- plenty roomy uh but you know it's it's not too huge um you know and with you know 365 horsepower from the the twin turbo v6 um it's you know it's got plenty of grunt you know it, it'll get up and go and it just it feels good to drive it um you know the, in especially if you put it in sport mode if you just put it in sport and just leave it there all the time it's great um you know sometimes in uh comfort mode you know there would be an occasional um, the, the shifts would occasionally see, feel, you know, maybe a little bit, um, lazy or, you know, coming later than you would expect them to. Um, uh, but, uh, especially for downshifts, uh, but, uh, in sport mode, you know, it, it seemed really well sorted out and, you know, it's got decent steering feel. It's, uh, everything is really well laid out in there. It's not, there's not so many features that you're overwhelmed by all the controls in there. You know, but it's got all the things you would expect uh, in a you know modern car. It's got good, comfortable seats, you know, great steering wheel. The the screen is you know it's one of the you know typical ones today where it's sitting up you know standing up on top of the dashboard, so it's you know relatively close to your line of sight. Uh, but it you know it still has it's a touch screen, but it has you know rotary volume and uh, controls and and uh, uh, climate control uh, knobs. So you know I think I think it it's really well executed. The materials feel really good. Uh, you know, and at a starting price, it's what about, I think 32, $33,000 starting price for the four cylinder rear wheel drive. And then on up to, uh, I think this one was about 47. Uh, you know, this is a, a pretty well loaded one with the, the panoramic, uh, moon roof. Uh, and one of the things I like about the stinger, you know, uh, is that it is, um, you know, it's, it's a hatchback, you know, so it's got the coupe like profile, but it's actually a hatchback, uh, like the uh, Audi S5 and A5, uh, you know, so, you know, it's actually got a lot of practicality. If you've got to carry some bigger stuff, you know, you can drop the back seats down. You've got a nice big opening to, you know, if you find something interesting at a garage sale or an estate sale on the weekend, you can throw it in the back there, or, you know, throw your, throw a couple of bikes back there. So it's, you know, it's both practical, you know, and it looks really sharp and, you know, has great proportions. Uh, maybe, you know, I think you know some people have said it's maybe a, a tad overstyled, um, you know, with the the vents, the uh, cooling yeah. vents on the uh, on the fenders behind the front wheels. I can get behind that impression. It, it looks a little yeah. bit like it's it's got a little bit of gingerbread on it. Yeah, but you know, I can you know, it's not so much that you know, it's not like it's got you know some big gigantic Type R wing on the back. <laughs> you know, so it's. There, there's a few elements that you know could probably do without, but I can certainly live with them. Yeah, it's uh, it, so for me, 
my biggest concern when when a, a Hyundai Kia sort of hot rod model comes out, and they've been doing a lot better at this over the last couple of years, it's always been the ride handling chassis rigidity trade off. And from all accounts, that seems to be really well sorted here, and uh, it drives like they've they've been doing quite a lot of homework. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's it's not. Um you know, it's not plush by any means, uh, especially, you know, on the, you know, the big wheels that are on there, but it, um, it's still comfortable, you know, it did a fine job of, you know, soaking up the, you know, what we, what passes for roads around here. <laughs> uh, you know, and it, you know, it's got good body control. Uh, you know, it, so it doesn't, it doesn't bounce around when you, when you hit the potholes or, or frost heaves, uh, you know, keeps things, you know, well under control and soaks, soaks up enough, you know, to keep the body from bouncing around while still, uh, you know, letting you know what's going on at the road surface. Have you driven the Stinger, uh, Pete? I have not. So I'm uh, interested in your perspective here, learning a lot right now. Yeah, I mean, you know, this the same platform is also going to underpin the upcoming uh, uh, Genesis G70, you know, which is their, you know, their smaller, their midsize model uh, that's coming up, you know, sliding below the, the G80. Uh, and you know, I think, you know, I think, I think Kia, you know, has done a really nice job of using the same hardware that you find in a Hyundai, but giving it, you know, a, a definitely a distinct look, maybe not, you know, I think in, in, in maybe not as distinctive feel, but certainly a distinct look, you know, and so you, you won't mistake, you know, a Kia for a Hyundai, uh, or a Genesis for that matter. You know, I mean, Gen- you know, the Genesis brand has been separated enough from from Hyundai from a design standpoint that uh, you know they're you know they, they don't they don't look like they're all part of the same family. Yeah, and the the G seventy is another car that everybody's really kind of awaiting with with bated breath. You know, you have the opportunity though to be there in, at the. It's sort of the the offices in Ann Arbor. So, is there an attitude floating around there, other than what we we read maybe in the magazine that about the Stinger? What else? What else have you picked up about it? Or is everybody quiet? <laughs> <laughs> I have not. Uh, I have not uh, picked up much about it right now. But that's probably just because uh, my attention has been on the self driving world so much these days. Uh, and I'm sure they're all good poker players. <laughs> <laughs> well, the you know, and this, the Stinger's got you know the the usual array of uh, driver assist features. It's you know it's got a lane keeping system and um, adaptive cruise control and blind spot monitoring and all that stuff. Uh, and you know the the lane keeping system, like most current Hyundai and Genesis and Kia models, actually does a surprisingly good job of you know trying to keep the car largely centered in the lane it you know unlike you know some of the um you know systems like super cruise or or volvo autopilot that actually try to hold the lane all the way down to a stop you know as, as if you're coming to a stop uh you know the 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 ones that are labeled just as driver assist as opposed to partially automated systems you know they typically cut out somewhere around 35 or 40 miles an hour for the the lane keeping part of it but on the highway it does it does a pretty nice job of of tracking the lanes yeah so i i guess my question is with everybody going toward crossovers and uh 
abandoning sedans. What what is the idea for them to bring out this kind of? And it's not even a sedan; it's a hatchback. But this really seems like kind of the direct opposite of where the buyers are. They're you know basically they're they're coming out with with a a premium sports sedan offering at a, at a time where everybody's kind of leaving that. Yeah. Unfortunately that, that is true. And, you know, I think, um, you know, when, when they went through the product planning process on, on the stinger and the G 70 a few years back, you know, I think like with, like with many of the rest of, uh, the Hyundai motor group lineup, you know, they, they definitely biased it more towards cars than utilities and, uh, you know, this, this is kind of the last of that generation and it'll probably be a little while before we see any more significant new cars from Hyundai Motor Group. Um, you know, we're, we're going into a phase now where we're going to see a whole bunch of new utility vehicles that, you know, from all three brands from Hyundai, Hyundai Kia and Genesis, uh, over the next uh, year and a half, two years, just, you know, the same, same as what we're getting from a lot of other uh, companies as well. But I think, you know, Genesis has, I think, uh, three, three different utilities, three different size utilities coming. Um, you know, Hyundai's got, you know, they've got a new Santa Fe coming. They've got the Kona uh, that's uh, launching uh, in the next few weeks uh, on sale. Uh, and, you know, they'll, they'll have, uh, you know, updates to the Tucson and, and other uh, utilities. They've got some other stuff coming as well. So there's going to be, you know, this, this, whole, this whole slate of new SUVs and crossovers from all three of the brands. So with Sherlock, it may arrive just in time. Uh, we'll have some sort of unexpected spike in fuel prices that will drive people back toward toward sedans and smaller cars. Yeah, that that may happen. Although you know, the, as part of that plan, you know, for all these utilities, um, you know, Hyundai is doing a lot of electrification as well. Uh, so they're um, you know they they got a an all electric a battery electric version of the Kona uh, that's launching later this year. They showed it at the Geneva show a couple of weeks ago, um, which at least in Europe anyway is uh, supposed to be rated at 290 miles of range. Um, there's um, hybrid versions of most of the other uh, utilities coming, uh, both some strong hybrids and I think also some 48 volt mild hybrids coming as well. Uh, so you know they're. I think you know they'll they'll probably be fine. Uh, you know, I don't think they're they're going to be launching anything that's going to be too uh, too thirsty with fuel. Good point, Sam. Good point. Yeah. Well, and you know they have they have the the turbo, the four cylinder version of of the Stinger. So, at the very least, if they absolutely had to, they could drop the V six and. <laughs> And say like we'll get back to that once once gas prices or you know fuel economy requirements um change but you know the numbers it puts up are just they're, they're i mean they're pretty astounding it's it's uh it's very quick um looking at car and driver they got a they got a 12.9 second zero to 60 out of it out of the, the you mean quarter mile uh, uh yeah i'm sorry quarter mile. 12.9 <laughs> to 60 is like the 80s <laughs> yeah that, that would not be so impressive yeah no it's like a 4.4 second zero to 60 like that's a that's a that's a blazing quick car yeah and and you know this is this is a car i enjoyed driving a whole lot more than the old genesis coupe you know i mean to 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 the degree you know the both the stinger and the uh the g70 are really kind of replacements for the Genesis Coupe, 
which never really seemed to find a, a foothold the in the, gen- in the yeah. marketplace. I mean, the Genesis Coupe felt so rough around the edges. Um, I was actually shocked at how much that felt like a a Mustang to me. It just I had the two liter the the turbo version of that uh, back years ago when it was first introduced, and I was so excited to try it. And it just it reminded me of an SVO Mustang, which it, like not it's not bad, but it was definitely not as refined as you'd think. Yeah, no, that was, that was definitely true. Um, d- did you ever drive the uh, Genesis Coupe, Pete? No, I don't think I did. I, I drove. I drove it. In, you know, the last time I drove one was before they did the the mid-cycle refresh in about twenty twelve or thirteen, I think. Um, you know, which made it a little a little more interesting looking. But um, you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't a terrible car, but it, it definitely. Uh, never really quite lived up to, I think, what was expected of it, especially, you know, given the Genesis branding. Um, you know, but of course, you know, it was also still a Hyundai then as well. What, you know, Genesis wasn't a separate brand at the times. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think, you know, that this one, you know, the Stinger and, and I'm sure the G70 are definitely far superior vehicles. So speaking of, uh, of, of, uh, f- consuming fuel, yeah. Uh, I think I think you had something that fits more into that category. I I certainly did, but you know I I would like to get we. How about we do this? How about we get Pete talking, and then okay. and then we come back to what I'm driving because <laughs> Pete admitted that uh, he's actually in the market for a family vehicle, and so that's correct. I'm really curious, and I know Sam, you are too. Is like okay. Now is like the chance to ask the doctor what he does when he has a cold. Like, <laughs> what does a car and driver of, editor buy for a car or shop for? So, you know, it's almost like the tyranny of too many choices when you, um, you know, live and breathe the, some of these cars every day or at least see them in the office. Uh, so I'll give you a quick rundown on my situation would be. The, uh, currently have in the family fleet a 16 Chrysler Town & Country minivan uh, and a 16 Subaru Forester, both leased and uh, those end probably eight to ten months out. So I'm not quite in the market yet, but definitely thinking about what will happen then. Uh, five, five of us in the family, including the three kids, so I think at least one minivan is a requirement. Yeah. Uh, but – but not sure if we will keep the town and country or maybe get a new Pacifica. Uh, and then on the Subaru side, you know, keep the Forester or maybe look at a new three row Subaru Ascent. Uh, and at the same time, I don't want to have both new cars uh, be bigger vehicles so that uh, I'd prefer to have at least one in the family be fuel efficient. So those are all my thoughts right now, kind of at the onset of, of starting to seriously think about what comes next. So let, let me ask you this, Pete. I mean, you drive from, from Dexter into Ann Arbor every day. So it's what, about 15 miles or so each way to the office? Yeah, it's probably a little bit less than that. So okay. not, not so, all that far. So if, if you had the minivan in the family, who would be the primary driver of that, you or your wife? Uh, it, it really pr- probably winds up being, well, it, it's 50, 50 to 60, 40. Uh, we both wind up doing a lot. It kind of depends on, 
you know, who's got a meeting that lets out and, and who's picking up the kids or dropping them off. And so it, there's not, I would not say that there's a primary or reliably primary driver of one car versus the other. So have, have you considered the Pacifica hybrid, the plug-in hybrid? I've considered it a little bit, but at the same time with the, with stone go not available because that's where the battery packs are. Right. It's kind of Only like for, for the second row. You still get the stone go for the third row. You do, but I use the second row a lot to, or we're reconfiguring seats in the current car often. So okay. it, it's a bit, that would be a big negative to me as would be the, the extra price for the hybrid. Well, you do, you do still get the, the $7,500 tax credit on the hybrid. So there is that, you know, so, I mean, it starts at like 41 and with the tax credit, you're, you're down into the mid thirties. Um, Not to be but, overlooked. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, the, 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 the loss of the second row stolen go is, is definitely a very valid point. Um, you know, on the other hand, you know, the ascent, you know, that's a big SUV. Yes. Yes, it is. And we don't have that now. Um, it's kind of funny. You would think that I'd be the one to be eager to get, you know, beyond the minivan stage, but, uh, you know, I don't care. It really functions well. Uh, but it's my wife who I, I'd say is probably more eager to, to ditch the minivan and, and all of its kind of suburban baggage than, than I am. Yeah. You know, that's something that I've found, uh, a lot of car writers, we, we have no problem saying, you know what? It's definitely not – it has no pretense other than being uh, a u- utility vehicle, the, the minivan. So we all wind up loving wagons and minivans with that, without any problem. We, we admit the stigma and we don't care. The, yes. The, the rest of the world seems to be hung up on it. And it's like, well, look, you're going to have a minivan because your kids are going to destroy it. It's going to – you know, it's, it's, it's like it's there because you need it and it's so handy. And I know – Yeah, I mean two two sliding doors. Yeah. Man, that, that rocks. My it kids – I think of how many times our kids would have dented a car parked next to us if they had to open doors versus just sliding the minivan ones open. Yeah, and and my kids actually love minivans because they can see out of them. The you know, the windows come down, they have low low sort of door sills, you know, so the windows are large. Uh, and they have captain's chairs. Maybe if you have you can get it configured so they have the bench I think in the second row too. So that that kind of depends on what you buy, but uh yeah, they they feel like little uh little um royalty riding around in a minivan yeah they're not you know once you're on the inside and not looking at the outside it's it's perfectly fine so the the decision to i mean there's a big difference between the town and country and this the 16 must have been like the last year you could get the town and it country. was it was the very last one we got a nice steep discount on it because yeah. i think they were trying to push them off the lot so there's definitely a big discernible difference between that and the pacifica on the other hand, there's also a, a, a price difference, um, and and so it, it sounds like you you have that consideration. Like you might just buy out the lease and and continue with that one. It, it, well, I think if we're going to buy out a lease, I'd be more likely to do it on the Forester because uh, it's perfectly it's a perfectly good car that we've both enjoyed. The only downside to it, I would say, would be that. If if we wanted to get all three kids into it, we can barely pack them into the back. Yeah, it's uh, so it's 
it, it, it functions well as, you know, in a pinch, but the kids are not getting smaller. And, you know, I think we might prefer the extra inch or two that the Outback provides. Yeah. Uh, in that in that case so how so, and yeah i mean they keep growing if you keep feeding them that's the, the issue i've had <laughs> yeah how, how old are they how big uh nine six and six. Oh yeah yeah you know you're, you're done for <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll get a inch or two back when the six-year-olds get out of their booster seats at some point but that's that's quickly going to be uh eaten up yeah the outback's a good choice too because it'll have that longevity where it, it is, it's a it's a bigger wagon, so it's going to um, be able to accommodate, you know, a few more years of of kids getting larger, activities getting more involved with more stuff, and just uh, it, it should hang on a little bit longer than a Forester. Although, you know, I think back like the amount of stuff we used to do with like escort wagons was astounding. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that uh, you know that could be a way we lean, and uh, I don't know. I, I'm kind of like on one hand, I know the Forester that we've had has been a good, reliable car, and we've taken good care of it. So um, you know, there's there's a lot to be said for for staying that particular course, uh, and then just making sure that all the kids can fit in the the other car, you know, more than comfortably for for long road trips and. And getting back and forth to school, and, and like you said, for carrying all the stuff that's inevitably going to, um, you know, really trash out the car. Yeah, I mean, you add a dog, it's all over. <laughs> <laughs> that's coming too. Uh, see, you're, you're, yeah, you're screwed. That's what, that's what seat covers are for. Uh, <laughs> um, when, very, I, I have I have the seat cover. I have the seat cover that can hook over the uh, headrests, and so when I need to take the dog somewhere, I just throw that on there, and. Uh, you know, so she doesn't make a big mess. Yeah, or you just get like one of those little teacup chihuahuas. You can tuck it in the glove compartment; it'll be fine. Especially- no, I, I like real dogs. <laughs> so, I mean, but with car and driver on your sort of your resume, like it's got to be the three series GT, or the, do they still make the five series GT? It's a six series now. It's six series. Okay. Yeah. There is definitely an aspect of, you know, what do I want to drive into the office parking lot uh, with on a daily basis? And I will tell you, I'm not the only one with a town and country, but, uh, you know, it's definitely not the most popular choice in the office. Well, yeah. Panamera Sport Turismo. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, know, it's a wagon. Actually. Yeah. What, what about a Volvo V90? I w- that that would be fine with me. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure what the price point would be as compared to the the Subaru, but so, that would be a nice choice as well. You know, the interesting thing is, I just um, I, I wrote a, a script about um, the care by Volvo thing, and it, it looks like right now that's just XC40s. But if if you could get that with a V90, you know, because it's about 600 bucks a month, I think, was the, the six to 700 bucks a month, depending on the, the actual. Uh, or the XC40? Yeah. yeah. I remember reading that. Um, I think so. The XC40 T5 is 600 bucks a month, and the T6 is, and the all wheel drive one is, is 700. And, and that, so that includes the insurance and, and maintenance everything. and everything. 
That's yeah. everything. And when you think about it, it sounds expensive, but it's kind of not. <laughs> and no, I mean, when you start adding all that stuff up. You're right. Yeah. You're absolutely right. And in a year, you can get a new one. So, I mean, I'm assuming that it's if they offer the V90 at some point, it's not going to be that cheap. It'll be something you know, a little bit more expensive, um, but the same kind of program, but that has a lot of merit, um, as, at a, a place in your life where you go, you know what, we're just going to have to pay for the car for a while. Uh, what, about, what about the, uh, the Buick Regal Tour X? Uh, are you asking me, Sam? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I had not put that on my radar. I mean, it's, it's, it's a wagon. It's bigger uh, at the Outback. It's a, sli- it's, it's a slightly crossover-ish, uh, wagon, uh, it's all-wheel drive, uh, you know, and it looks good. You know, it's probably worth taking a look at. Based on your recommendation only, I, I will take a. Uh, I, I will at least put it on my list and take take a, a once over at it. But I, yeah, I, I don't know. I, that that's an interesting thought. I had not considered that. I detect a little uh, Buick trrepidation. <laughs> <laughs> well, I. I Hey, you know, it's coming from a Chrysler. What you know? Good, how bad could it be? I think I'm not quite, you know, in the average Buick owner age range just yet. I think that's what well, they're, they're working. They're on. not even. They're not even putting the Buick name on them anymore. So that's true. Yeah, you, know, you just have the the, the three shield uh, badge, but you, you know, no uh, no name. There's a there's got to be a market. I know that there were people who were rebadging their um, Chevrolet, Chevrolet SSs as Holdens. You know, you get the the Australian market Holden badges and retrofit the car. I'm, I'm sure you could get some Holden or Opal badges. I was going to say you could right? get Opal badges or or Saab badges because if you close your eyes, like that is a modern day nine three wagon. Uh, <laughs> I think I think GM actually even offered like through you know through the parts division, you could actually order Holden badges directly from GM. That's right. I think you put could, onto an SS. You could actually order the SS with the badges already affixed. I believe. Oh, I recall. okay. Me, I. I Price went out, and I was very excited. And then they only had black interiors, and so that sunk it for me. Also, nobody in anywhere near my house had manual transmissions. They offered it with manuals, but apparently no dealers stocked it. So yeah. <laughs> uh, it's also yeah. not a great family car. <laughs> Probably lacking just a little bit in that respect, yes. Yeah. I mean, it's a big sedan, but like every time – it's one of those cars that's so special – you know, and you know that they're, and they've already killed it. You know that they're not going to continue making that for that long. You just, so you're going to cringe every time like, somebody drops a French fry in it. You're just like, no. It's <laughs> <laughs> so not a good family car. Great, great press car, though, where you can just like, yeah, whatever. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know somebody else is going to be responsible for detailing it next week. Yeah, they do such a great job. Um, oh, I know. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if we've, We've solved the problem or just made it worse? Probably made it worse, but <laughs> we're good at that. Yeah. Well, appreciate the uh, the insight. You know, I mean, so we can actually get to the car that I was driving this week, uh, which would actually be a really good choice for you if you have unlimited funds for fuel. Uh, <laughs> I, dr- I drove the, uh, the Nissan Armada Platinum Reserve. And, uh, you know, Platinum Reserve sounds to me like some kind of bad uh like whiskey blend from the 70s <laughs> <laughs> and there's there's really there's no avoiding the fact that it is it's just 
a large vehicle. And, and people, some people are offended by that. One of my coworkers made sure to tell me how stupid he thought the, um, the Armada was. And I, it's not though. Uh, I, I quite like it. Um, it's based on the Nissan patrol. So it's got some serious, uh, capability. That, that means it can handle Michigan potholes. Yeah. Uh, it can handle a lot. Um, it's, it's a real truck. So it's got a full frame. It's got the, uh, I think they call it now the Endurance V8. So it's the 5.6 liter. It's almost 400 horsepower. It's a it's a big burly thing, and it sounds good. It's plenty powerful. Seven speed automatic. It, it has all wheel drive, but it's you know locking transfer case, I believe. So um, quite quite capable of just about anything you're going to throw at it. Uh, but it's also really really comfortable, um, especially in platinum reserve trim. You can you can get the Armada in like sv trim um which starts it's a little pricey it starts at like 48 as sv with the, the all-wheel drive the, the platinum reserve was more than that i don't i don't have the exact price in front of me but it was not super cheap you know it's it, it's also kind of like a starter infinity at that point so it's, it's pretty close to a yeah, pretty much um you know it has has nice leather and it's just it's got all the the doodads and it's it was cushy and um, but it's, it's three rows. It's a big SUV. So I got, you know, the whole family in it and everybody was comfortable. My kids are, are, are 12 and 10. So, uh, a little bigger than yours, Pete, but we also, we had the dog. So he had his own row and, and okay. he's, he's not a huge dog. He's about 50. Animal to have its own row, row like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, the platinum reserve starts at 62 grand. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's not terrible for, for what it is. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a lot of money, but it's. It's a lot of vehicle, too. And, and that's the thing where, uh, you know, people who complain about big SUVs kind of don't get the point of the big SUVs. Like, you know they're not going to get great fuel economy, but you need the space. You need the capability. If you ever wanted to, um, you know, tow something or, uh, you know, needed, needed that capability, uh, you know, towing your RV and taking the whole family, like, that's – it's going to do it without a problem. Or, or just towing your house along. Yeah, or towing your house. Um, what kind of fuel economy did you get? I It was in the teens. It was, you know, solidly around 15. It, 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 gets, it gets some miles per gallon. Yeah. 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 I mean, multiple miles per gallon. Yeah. It's in the, it's in the double digits. Yeah. What more could you ask for? But, you know. It's not, yes, uh, but for that, like, you know, you can you can hook eighty five hundred pounds up to it and throw eighteen hundred pounds almost in inside. So there's seventeen hundred pounds inside. That, that's pretty good. That's a that's a lot of capability. Um, it is, and like, and to your point, you know, I thinking about it now, it's amazing how fuel economy probably used to be like my top consideration or, or one of them. And now it's not. It's about versatility in the cabin and, um, you, know, you know, just fl- flexibility in a sense of, of fitting a family of five now comfortably in a vehicle. Yeah, it's it's sort of the trade-off. I mean, one of the things is that fuel is kind of inexpensive, so it's less of a concern here yes. Uh, yes. right now. I, I think if, if fuel were to go up, it would have to go up a lot, though. It would have to go up at least a buck, I think, per gallon um before it really you started to hear complaints and even and even at that it's still like you grumble a little bit but overall it, we still just continue to to do what we do um 
the, the, certainly people at the margins would be affected, but uh, and it would cool sales of these maybe. But I feel like if you're spending sixty, seventy thousand dollars on a pretty well loaded traditional SUV, you're not going to have an issue with filling it. It's not <laughs> your make break moment. Yeah. Right. Um, hey, hey Pete, what, when did you say your timeline was for replacing your cars? Um, about eight months out for the start of it. Okay. Um, cause, um, you know, the other thing to consider too is, I mean, there's some, there's some stuff that's in the pipeline that hasn't been revealed yet, but, uh, you know, some stuff that's coming, um, you know, we talked about last week, you know, uh, what Ford was discussing last week with, they've got a whole bunch of new SUVs coming and they announced that all of their SUVs going forward are going to offer, um, hybrid or plug-in hybrid powertrains, um, you know, starting with the, the new escape and the, uh, uh, the Explorer, uh, which should be coming within the next year. So depending on what your, your time frame is, um, you know, that's another one to consider if you, you know, if you do want to bias more towards fuel economy yeah. and, uh, you know, there, there's all, there, there's also some other, you know, hybrid utilities out there like the, the, the Toyota Highlander, the, the current generation Highlander is actually pretty decent. It's that gotten a lot better over the years. Is. Yeah. That, that is a possibility. Yeah. Yeah, but you know you want the V8. <coughs> like so you definitely want something like the Armada because you just put the <laughs> pedal down and it just roars. <laughs> um, and I, and I, so I totally used it as a family car. Um, and I, I, I felt that some of the stuff, the, the family car stuff was – it's nice that it's there, but it, it's, it also didn't work as well as I had wished it, it it would have, um, you know, they had a power lift gate. It kind of takes its time going up and down, which I think I would be unhappy about in a downpour. Uh, the, the power folding rear seats. And so if you're trying to load it up, you can you can fold that third row. You just hold the button and it folds down. They also take their their sweet time to fold. So, you know, at least at that point, you're under the lift gate. So you're, you're somewhat sheltered. Uh, but that stuff could work better. Um, the the liftover height and this is an issue with i think any suv like this is the liftover height's high and the the rear bumper sticks out so you you get muck on your pants especially right now in the winter when you try to put stuff in it if you're not careful um so there was a couple demerits there but you know it's it's a lot of space it's a lot of capability i i thought 8500 pounds towing is it's good but it's the pickup truck market they're all beating the hell out of each other with tow ratings so that actually seems low and that that may be just perspective i i will never be towing 8500 pounds but um it, i i thought it would be more at that yeah and the full size full size tr- uh, pickup segment now you're looking you know at 12 12 to 12 and a half thousand pounds is what you need to have to be competitive anymore yeah and, and i mean that's a, such a paper like that's an armchair quarterback number cuz <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a lot. To, I don't even. Well, you know, if you're if you're towing a twenty foot airstream, you know that's you know that that gets up over ten thousand pounds. Yeah, and however many hundreds of thousands of dollars. Like this, this is the thing. It's like who's got a twenty foot airstream, man? <laughs> How many of those do they sell these days? I they, they sell, um, they're popular. I think every every automaker has a couple of them that they that they haul out for their launch programs whenever right. they bring a new truck to market. <laughs> uh, 
I mean, like, you, you would certainly have no problem with a pretty nicely sized, like, J feather or, or some other kind of um, more lightweight, more affordable uh, trailer. Uh, you know, the one feature that really stood out to me, and partly is because they they made big noises about it in the press release, was the, their new intelligent rearview mirror. They, I guess they debuted it on this the Platinum Reserve uh, Armada. So it's, it's, it's like the Cadillac mirror that it, it turns into a display for the rear camera You just when you just flip a switch. And I can see the use case that they talk about is like if the rear, the block rearward is, the, the view rearward is blocked. Um, but when you're going down the road and you have stuff in the car blocking the rear view, the interior rear view mirror, you've still got your exterior mirrors. And, and what's behind you you can you can pick it up from those mirrors and it kind of counts less um so when you're maneuvering it's it's that's really when you need that mirror and to to flip it into basically camera mode the resolution of the screen i I thought was really it made it really tough for me to figure out what i was looking at as i'm trying to drive this big thing um so i didn't feel because it was too small or It, it was too small and just this it's this weird I don't. I don't know. Like I just wasn't seeing enough detail. I. I it freaked me out. I did, I'm maneuvering this big truck around, and I'm. Tr- I'm trying to make sense of this display. And it, it. If I spent more time with it, it probably would be okay. But also the rear view, the the rear camera comes up on the the center display, so you can just look there, or at least the overhead camera does. You know the the Nissan sort of three hundred and sixty view, which is very helpful. Um, and I still know how to use my mirrors. <laughs> So it's just like that's my my default. So I thought it was actually less useful than um, they make it out to be. But it, everybody's trying these these new things. I still feel like the value of screens in cars is is dubious and to be determined at, at best. Yeah. Well, I think you know one of one of the things to keep in mind is that you know a lot of the both the automakers and the suppliers are. Working, you know, they're trying. They're trying to get this stuff sorted out now with these display mirrors, because with the goal of eventually, um, when the regulations are changed, to allow them to get rid of the exterior mirrors, because you know the the mirrors on the outside of the car. That's a big source of aerodynamic drag. Is it really that little, big? Yeah, it's it's pretty significant, and 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 also wind noise. So they would love to get rid of those outside mirrors, um, and replace them with cameras. I think that's a terrible idea. That's well. Uh, I, I, there's also a, there's also another factor too, besides the arrow and the uh, um, the the wind noise, because you know a lot of people you know m- misadjust their mirrors. They don't do they don't have they don't really have them set properly so they can see as much as they should. That's true. And if you uh, if you have the uh, cameras there in place, regardless of what position you're sitting in. You know the they can they can always be set to give you the right field of view, you know, and display that on you know on the displays on the inside of the car, regardless of of where you might be sitting, whether you're tall or short, um, you know, up sitting up close to the wheel or far back, those those will always be correct set correctly. I okay, I can buy I can buy that. That's that's engineers solving a problem. <laughs> <laughs> And, then, and on a plus side, if you if you got rid of them, um, if you got rid of the side view mirrors, like you know, it's such a hassle from a consumer perspective because 
they're so easy to knock off on the side of your garage. Not that I've ever done that. Uh, or, or other people are knocking them off somewhere and they're expensive to replace. So from a consumer perspective, I like the idea that, you know, here's this part that is, is expensive. And now, now there's the prospect that although I'm probably paying more for the technology in the car, uh, there's a, at least the idea that I'm not going to have to go out and replace it at some point. Yeah. Or I'm less likely to have to replace it at some yeah. point. I mean, you can probably get a camera that's very small. You know, we call them lipstick cameras, or we used to back in, in the day. You know, just really tiny, wide-angle uh, video cameras. And they're, they're so small now that they can be pretty well-protected and give you a decent image, uh, at least much smaller yeah. than, than the full mirror assemblies. Yeah, well, I mean, think, think of the size of the camera module in your phone. I mean, you know, it's tiny. Yeah. That's, I, that's all you need. I would just so the for the problem I have with that is just the resolution of the displays and being able to quickly understand what you're looking at and you're going from something that you know a mirror a physical mirror you you understand that that optical system you know it all it all makes sense the resolution is limited by your eyeballs it's not uh you know cuz you're, you're just bouncing images you're you're not now dealing with interpreting a field of view that's alien because it's it's a camera it's you know it's a it's a 10 degree lens so you you, you know i mean it's it's a i mean a 10 millimeter lens that has a 120 degree field of view that's just like that's a lot you don't normally take in a view like that you know you have to make sense of of it and and figure out Ob- objects in mirror are closer than they appear exactly exactly you know and and uh in one of the things i used to to, to like was the uh, in the older Volvos you could get the side reducing mirrors which were not legal here but you could you could get the part number for the glass and have it shipped <laughs> from Europe and so side reducing mirrors used to have a little bit of of a, um, a con- concave I think segment just just at the outer like outer couple right. inches so they give you this little extra edge where you could see your blind spot. And uh, it was different than than the U.S. sort of regulated mirrors. So that took a little while to get used to, but it's, it's still this other thing. It's another another thing you have to get used to. And, and I don't know. I'm getting really picky now. So I'll just say that cameras are coming and screens are coming. And I'm just going to have to get used to it and continue. To just, I'll keep complaining because that's what I do. <laughs> and if if we wanted to complain, we've had a really good week. Of oh, things to we complain certainly about. have. Um, two companies I personally love to despise are uh, <laughs> in the in the news, but the one that I think is the most uh, pertinent is um, Uber had an issue in Arizona that everybody's trying to make sense of, uh, where one of their self-driving cars actually caused a fatality, and the video just got released uh, tonight. And it, it appears that there's a lot of different failures. Um, one of them was a distracted backup driver. The others, the car just apparently didn't detect this this um, pedestrian that it should have caught. Uh, and, you know, it's it's an unfortunate situation. It calls into question the future of, of Uber's program, but also just overall how far along this, this autonomous driving stuff is. So... Um, yeah, we can, we're going to riff on that for a little while. What's your, what's your take on that guys? Pete, you want to go first? Sure. You know, I guess just to, you know, go off of what Dan said, I think it's more of a statement about Uber than the, 
you know, greater self-driving future, you know, at least, you know, for people who have been watching this develop closely for a number of years, whether in the industry or, or just outside of it, um, you know, obviously on, on one hand, I feel like the first death caused by a fully self-driving system has been an eventuality. We, you know, we all knew it was going to come at some point, and, and now this week is that point. So, you know, assuming that people have been preparing for that and have contingencies in place, I, I don't think that this really alters the the broader future. On the other hand, you know, Uber is this company that seems to have gaff after scandal, uh, after after problem, and now and now a death. And you know, I think it, it, this is not a good sign for a company that's already besieged. And they had the trade secrets lawsuit after they, uh, you know, that they settled. And uh, this is just the latest and, and the worst in a you know multiple years long string of. Of problems, and you know, so I, I, I think for a company that is relying on self-driving technology to to be its future, as as Travis said, you know, more than a year ago, now I think at this point that that's the key to making the profitability over the long term. This this is a very very problematic thing for the company, and and obviously really really sad that somebody's life has been lost. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, you know, I think. Uber has a long history of problematic behavior, um, you know. And one of the things that came out during that that lawsuit that you mentioned, uh, you know, was some uh, some messages that went back and forth uh, between uh, Travis Kalanick, the former CEO, and Anthony Lewandowski, the the uh, ex Waymo engineer that um, went to Uber, you know, about you know having to take shortcuts. You know, t- taking you know, needing to needing to get shortcuts in order to catch up and and pass Waymo in the yes. self driving race because he, you know, uh, you you mentioned you know that, that Travis basically described um, autonomous vehicles as an existential threat to Uber, and and I think that I think that's true, but I'm not sure that um, that Uber developing its own autonomous vehicles is necessarily something that's going to be a solution for them. Well, I mean, uh, Uber seems like an existential threat to Uber at this yeah, point. Well, they're, <laughs> yeah, they're self, self-inflicted wounds. And I think what's, you know, really stands out too is here you have a company that has, you know, as you said, this is a, a history of rule breaking and a history of rule breaking in the self-driving realm. Like they, they defied California regulators when they wanted to test there and refused to get a permit. And, you know, not only is that why they wound up in Arizona for, you know, you know, which obviously impacts this, this lady who's now dead. But I think that just contributes to this, this history of a company's problematic behavior in terms of complying with, with regulation and rules, which really, uh, you know, are needed in the self-driving realm. There's, there's. I think we'd all agree now. If, if there's one sobering, you know, thought that I think, you know, has come so far here in the first 48 hours, uh, it, it's that, you know, more people are realizing that regulations are are needed, and we can talk about what those are and what works best. But, uh, you know, these cars operating in a vacuum is is not not the best solution. Well, so yeah, let's let's pull on that thread uh, about. Regulations. What do you think? What do you think they are, and, and what do you think is needed? Sam, you want to take that? 
Sure. So, you know, I've, I've been actually been saying this for some time that, you know, I think we need some some regulations. And certainly, <coughs> excuse me, I think the, the argument that um, we don't want to overregulate these because we don't want to stifle the, the development of the technology is valid. But I don't think that that necessarily means we need a completely laissez-faire approach to this problem either. Um, you know, if you if you think about it, you know, if you if you look at the uh, the parallel between the human driver and the virtual driver, the the computer driver and and an autonomous vehicle, you know, one of the you know what they're looking at right now, to the degree that they're looking at regulations at all uh, in Congress. It's you know they're they're looking at they they want to put in law uh, put a law in place that would exempt autonomous vehicles from certain of the federal motor vehicle safety standards that don't really apply to autonomous vehicles things like the requirement to have steering wheel and pedals and and a few of the other a few other things that are needed for a normal human driven vehicle uh, because if there's no human driving it you obviously don't need those things uh, at the same time. You know, it it also codifies the idea that you know we'll continue with the the the, the split that we have between uh, the federal government and the states, where the federal government you know traditionally has regulated you know the the safety standards for the vehicles themselves, but the states have been responsible for licensing and registration of of drivers and of vehicles. Well, in an autonomous vehicle, instead of a human being the driver. You have a software and hardware stack that is now the driver, a virtual driver, as as John Krafczak has called it. And in in that case, you know, why shouldn't that virtual driver have licensing requirements? This, you know, just as a human driver does. Why shouldn't that virtual driver be required to demonstrate that it knows the basic rules of the road? Or, for example, you know, when you and I go to get a driver's license or renew a driver's license. We we have to take an eye exam to prove that we can actually see, right? And the why shouldn't the same thing apply to a virtual driver? Why shouldn't it take the equivalent of an eye exam, uh, you know, and be required to demonstrate that the sensor system can actually see the things that it needs to see in order to navigate around the world? And you know, so what I'd like to see happen because clearly the current administration in Washington is is unlikely to do anything of of, of note in terms of adding new regulations is to see the states, you know, perhaps work with SAE, the Society of Automotive Engineers, to develop a standard, you know, have SAE develop a standard, uh, as they do for many things, for how you test uh, the sensing systems, you know, and evaluate them. You know, you need to be able to detect a pedestrian at some distance or a pedestrian or a cyclist at some distance in various lighting conditions as a bare minimum before you can start to drive that vehicle on the road. Yeah, and why, why can't, I mean, that to me seems like a perfectly reasonable thing to do that will not stifle any innovation, you know, just before you put it on the road, demonstrate that the thing can actually see, yeah, you, know, you know, just a human has to be able to see. It's not like development stops in the meantime while you're figuring that stuff out <coughs> either. You know, there was the, the, uh, ARPA was it ARPA or DARPA challenge where they they were in basically makeshift cities, uh, right? Uh, the urban challenge. Yeah, so you can program a bunch of these things to to be within a, a sort of geofenced area and try to run them into each other and have them learn how to avoid. You can do a lot of that and, stuff, and we and we have those kinds of facilities. I mean, here yeah. you know here in the Ann Arbor area, we've got two of them. 
you know, that I'm, my house is pretty much equidistant between them. You know, you've got M city at the university of Michigan campus. And then, you know, a few miles away in the opposite direction here from me here is the American center for mobility, a 327 acre site that has been specifically built for testing auto- autonomous and connected vehicles. And, you know, uh, all the manufacturers have their own test facilities. Uh, Waymo's got a test facility in central California that they use. Yeah. So there's plenty of places where we can be testing this stuff while we go through, figure out, develop the the standards and actually start validating those vehicles before we start putting them back on the public roads. Yeah, I I think you're on the right track, Sam. And I I think, you know, I don't know if there's a difference in these things, but the you know, I don't know if you can call it a standard or, you know, a, a gate that you have to pass through to, you know, reach a certain minimum level of qualifications. Um, it's tough, though, because when you start talking about testing, it's like, OK, if you test this one scenario, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, the car is going to react the same way in a another scenario that's very similar but not identical. So, that I mean, I think that's why we see. Um, you know, automakers and, and the likes of Waymo and others building up these these libraries of scenarios that are, you know, number in the tens of thousands at this point, if, you know, if not more. And so, you know, it's, it kind of gets back to that, that conundrum. How do you, you know, you can have all these tens of thousands of scenarios tested for, but it's, it's the one that you don't know for sure, or, you know, the one anomaly that, that is the one that winds up getting these companies in trouble. And, you know, for it, you know, maybe a much more mild example of that, thinking back to just, you know, maybe two, three weeks ago when Starsky Robotics talked about their truck testing in Florida and, you know, they're going through their first fully driverless test. There's no human in the truck. And the, the power went out to the building where they have their remote operations and when the, the connectivity to that building was lost in the truck, uh, that was a kind of a key flag for their safety system. The truck truck stopped in the middle of the lane. So obviously a much, much more positive outcome. And I think that's kind of what you do want to see have happen uh, when something goes unplanned. But I think it does speak to the fact that you, you can do all the planning in the world or you can test all the scenarios that, that you can conceive of, but it's the one that you don't get to that winds up being problem. Right. And, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, that this is uh, the, you know, the be all and end all of, of testing and, and uh, standards for automated vehicles. Um, And, and the reality that everyone is going to have to accept, you know, it's funny, you know, we hear these people from these companies talking about this goal of getting to zero crashes and zero fatalities. And that's great as a goal, but I think, you know, what we also need to have these same people talk about is the the reality that while this is this may be the goal, the recognition that we're almost certainly never going to get there, you know, in, in any kind of reasonable time frame, if if ever, you know, it's it's going to be, you know, the the curve of you know, I hopefully the way this works out is the the curve of fatalities over time, you know, is going to go down and it's going to be an asymptotic curve that approaches zero but never quite gets there. Uh, you know, as the technology gets better, it'll keep getting closer and closer. But there's always going to be some scenario that you can't deal with. You know, like in this particular case, you know, on Monday, when we first heard about the crash, the crash took place on Sunday night. When we first heard about it on Monday, the story that 
that came out from the police that were investigating it uh, was that this woman, you know, was walking down the the median, you know, on this road in in Tempe, Arizona, uh, with her bicycle, and she suddenly went out into the street right in front of the vehicle. You know, so you know, it's it's entirely possible. You know, I mean, it's it's totally realistic that you know if somebody decided they wanted to, you know, end their life. You know, they could jump out in front of an autonomous vehicle. Yeah, but and the and the and the realities of physics are that no matter how good the system is, it might not be able to stop in time. Correct, but like, no, this situation, like, I, I feel bad saying this, but like, you knew it was going to be Uber doing this. They like they've well, proven yeah, that they're untrustworthy, I mean, and uh, you it know, it was it was highly likely to be Uber. The, let's put it. I, sure, um, this situation is just bad in so many different ways first of all this is an xc xc uh 90 so apparently city safety is disabled on these vehicles this is the exact situation that city safety is designed for it would have at least beeped at him it did nothing and and i was you know as as we were sort of working up to this point this has been chatter for quite a while you know, you brace yourself because you know that the first thing that the, the the backup driver is going to say when this happens is there was no time to react. And no, of course not, because you're not paying attention. You're doing what everybody I see around me in traffic in the morning, stop and go traffic, it is doing the same thing. They're all checking their phone. They're just distracted, you know. And so, no, you're not going to catch it. It's it's going to be over before you even know what happened. And well, that and that, but that's a whole other issue with you know uh, partially automated systems, you know, level two and level three yeah. systems that rely on the driver to still take over control from time to time. Yeah, and it in a way, it makes the argument for you know th- this is a fork in the road for a lot of companies where some are saying. You know, they want to take that progressive step to, you know, high level two or level three vehicles where there's that that mix of or that, you know, that handoff of control. And then you have others saying we're we're skipping all that because it's too complicated. We're going to fully driverless. And, you know, if there's anything about this this Uber crash so far that sticks in my mind, you know, regarding this issue, it's that it lends more credence to that theory that. You know that you don't want to bother with level two and level three because because the driver involved, the human driver involved, is is a weak link. Well, yes and no though. Like I feel like a human driver would have again at least tried to swerve if it, if they had been paying attention. So it kind of makes the argument for level zero. Like none of this seems like a great idea at this point. Like, well, and and that's you know that that's exactly what the this vehicle should have done even in autonomous mode is it should have. And, you know, from watching the video, you know, we, and we've been talking up till now about, you know, what was said on Monday right after the crash. But this evening, you know, a couple hours before we started recording tonight, the Tempe Police Department posted the video from the, the camera that was mounted in the vehicle. You know, the two actually two videos, one of the, the forward looking camera looking down the road and the other one uh, looking back at the safety driver. And, you know, we found, you know, when, when you watch that video, you'll see that. This, what actually happened is very different from the story that we've been hearing for the last two days. Yeah, I mean, this is a car and, that's bristling with, you know, it's got radar and and uh, 
I'm assuming radar, lidar, got, and camera. Right, lidar, and it doesn't have infrared. It, it you know, even the, no, even but, but nobody's using infrared. But but the you know the 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 radar and the lidar, you know, uh, even without the cameras, they can't really see it in the dark. The radar and the lidar by themselves should have you know should have been able to detect this woman in complete darkness because what we actually saw from the video is no, she did not jump out from the shadows. You know, uh, you know she. Visually, you know, on the video, you know, she appeared out of the shadows because um, she, you know, she was wearing dark clothes. And, you know, once the, the headlights of the vehicle hit her, you know, then, you know, suddenly she was she was visible. But there was no other traffic on the road. It was a clear night. There was no rain or snow or anything else. The, the car was in the right hand lane of, of at least two lanes um, and nobody in the left hand lane. She was not running across. She was walking across. So she had walked across at least one and a half lanes of traffic uh, or at least one and a half lanes of this road and maybe more, depending on exactly where it was. There might have also been a left turn lane. Uh, so she had been in the roadway for some time, unobstructed by any other vehicles or any other objects, not moving particularly fast. So those sensors should have easily been able to pick her up at a distance of at least 50 meters Probably as much as 150 meters or more, you know, so, you know, like three or 400 feet or more. And since the car was only going 38 miles an hour at, at that speed, you know, if, full brakes, it should easily be able to stop in 60 or 70 feet. I mean, yeah, that's so that's to me, there's so, a whole lot of inexplicability going on here um, other than the backup driver wasn't attentive. But you have to design for that because while you know, he, he shares some culpability there with, you know, being distracted and not doing your job. Like, that's human nature. You have to understand that that's going to happen. Uh, and you have to make make the systems alert or in, in some way. And, and, you know, the cars are doing this. Like I was saying, city safety already does that. Uh, the Nissan that I had last week, it would push back on the brake pedal uh or the, the the gas pedal. I mean, <laughs> pushing back on the brake pedal is not going to help you. Uh, <laughs> it would it would push back on the the gas pedal if it felt me getting too close to stuff. So some of these systems they already work. The, the you know the lane keeping systems and stuff they can they can nudge the the steering to, to to initiate a swerve. It just sounds like none of that worked at all in any way. And and you know even if it had, it, it might not have avoided the outcome here. But it's it's almost like it just it just didn't pick up on the fact that there was there was somebody in the roadway and that you know there's a lot of factors right like the 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 roadway itself and the intersection and even the uh, approved crossing or the the official crossing that wasn't too far away it's kind of poorly designed um so we have a lot of we have a lot of work to do <laughs> i would Clearly. venture to guess looking at that intersection and you know and we don't have an exact distance figure yet on how far away she was when she was crossing. But, um, you know, I would, I would say she's at least a hundred feet away from that intersection and from the crosswalk in particular, and probably more, which, which does lead to the fact that, yeah, this is that the, the design of that whole area is, is, is terrible. I mean, frankly, terrible. Like I was saying, I'm not a, I'm not a traffic engineer, but on the other hand, I don't think you have to be in a, a traffic engineer to take, you know, a few quick glances of that area and note that there's this pedestrian Island in the middle of the road with 
with paths on it uh, that kind of crisscross in an X, yet there's signs saying that pedestrians shouldn't cross the street using it, and those signs are facing the road and not the pedestrians who might be in the traffic island. Yeah. you know, and then you're you're at least a hundred feet and probably significantly more away from the crosswalk. I don't think uh, I, w- I would venture to guess that a hundred of a hundred people crossing the street there would would not walk up to the crosswalk. They would walk. They would cross exactly where this lady did, and uh, that definitely speaks to the you know the design of the the road and, and infrastructure there. It's not pedestrian friendly. It's car friendly. Yeah, and at the end of the day, too, pedestrians always have the right of way. So and it's it's our job as drivers to to watch out for them and and I, I don't know I mean I think it's a, it's kind of a black eye for the whole the whole industry. Um, some of the companies have been a lot more responsible than others, and I I, I feel like maybe in a, in a way we can get a positive out of it with understanding that hey guys it's, it's been the wild west like you said this is why they're in Arizona versus California because California wanted them to to be a lot more careful and Arizona said, no, come on over. Um, yeah. And I mean, that's, that's, you know, uh, earlier on, Pete mentioned, you know, that when Uber first started, when they first, uh, took their testing out of Pittsburgh, they started doing their testing in Pittsburgh a couple of years ago, they went to San Francisco and, you know, even in California, you know, to, uh, test on the roads in California, it's, it's $150 fee to get a permit to test a vehicle on the roads in California. And, Uber wouldn't even do that. I mean, they they couldn't even be bothered to register and, and pay a hundred and fifty dollar fee. And within a day and a half before they finally bailed out of San Francisco, there were several videos posted showing these same vehicles running red lights and you know doing doing other you know having other close calls. That you know, there's no there's no excuse for why those vehicles were even on the road at that point. That's right. And, you know, and to get into the specifics of that, that's precisely when the Arizona governor, Doug Ducey, started recruiting Uber testing via Twitter, saying that California was overregulated and that Arizona was open for business and that Uber should ditch California. I mean, there was nothing subtle about this. Uh, he, he was clearly trying to capitalize on the, you know, str- arguments that Uber was having with the state of California at the time. And, uh, you know, I think in, in a lot of ways, like, you know, everybody says, of course, safety comes first. But but when people look at this as a business development opportunity uh, and kind of assume that the safety will come along with it, this, um, you know, what we see this week here is kind of the result of. of they need to know, flip that around. The safety needs to come first and then the business. To, it, the business it really separately. does. And I, I, I think that. And, and there's really, I was just going to say, there's a balance of those things. There's not a balance. Safety comes first and and that's the end of it. Um, but at the same time, like I said earlier, like in some respects, we don't expect these cars to be perfect and somebody's going to get killed. So, you know, how do you plan for safety as best you can while, while not while realizing we're never really going to get to absolute zero. Well, that's what makes it so egregious in this instance is that uh, we all went into it and we're all continuing to go into it with, with eyes open saying, yeah, it's something bad and tragic is, is likely to happen. Uh, I mean, people still get hit by trains and, and, and that's technology that's been around for a couple hundred years. Uh, the, the problem is 
that it seems like none of the planning for that worst case or none of the care went into it. It was just, you know, let's just go ahead and, well, that, and be sloppy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's very true. And in this case, there is there is no care or there's none of that, you know, testing or certain standards to meet or, you know, to use the word regulation. There's very little of it. Arizona uh, permits autonomous testing by executive order that by and large, says that the cars have to meet federal motor vehicle safety standards. Uh, there's a little more nuance to it than that, but uh, you know their their executive order that's you know permits this essentially says like this is good for business development. It's it's like the second bullet point on the on the executive order that it, you know low regulations and business so, friendly environments are are the reason why they're doing this. But that's that see that's that's really the crux of it is. I, my personally held belief is that um, reasonable, smartly drawn up regulation does not chill business activity. You write the regulation together with the industry you want to regulate. The regulators and the regulated come together and you compromise and you come up with a framework that you can all live with. Uh, that's not happening. I don't, I don't think that by having an intelligent regulatory framework, you're going to chill business development. I mean, airlines do okay. <laughs> and, yeah. and they're, they're yeah. regulated. Uh, you know, there's a lot of industries. That, I mean, construction is <laughs> regulated. Like there are reasons why we regulate things that don't have to do with, with taking a, a, a a bite out of their, their business. And, and so I, I'm not one that believes that, that regulation kills business. Uh, on the other hand, you know, the, the very reason why Uber in particular is developing autonomous vehicles has nothing to do with anything other than replacing people with machines so they can maximize profit. Or at least try to reduce their losses. Uh, yeah, I guess they may never <laughs> because profit. I, 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 I remain unconvinced that, that yeah. I remain unconvinced that any company that you know does not already have some kind of manufacturing infrastructure and distribute you know service and distribution infrastructure in place is going to be able to reach profitability anytime in the foreseeable future just by going to autonomous vehicles because yeah. the the amount that they're going to have to invest to either buy physical assets that they currently don't have to deal with, maintain those assets, uh, support them you know, over the, the life of the vehicle. You know, there, there's a whole bunch of new co- – you eliminate the cost of the driver, but you're adding a whole bunch of new costs in there that companies like Uber and Lyft don't currently have. So yeah, I, I totally agree with that, Sam. I think you just hit the nail on the head, like the step away from the uh, Arizona – Death, just the, the greater long-term future of the ride ride-sharing industry, in particular Uber and Lyft. You know, just thinking about them going from a very capital light business model to one where where somebody's got to own the cars and take care of them is very different. And you know, so there's this reckoning with the autonomous technology coming, but then also with that that model itself. So yeah, where does that leave us? Does this uh, kind of incident, or, or I guess even beyond this incident, does does this industry look like something that is just at a certain point kind of going to fizzle, or 
what what is the actual future involved for for autonomous vehicles? I don't think it's going to fizzle. <clears throat> I think um, I think the the deployment is going to be you know it's going to be slower than a lot of um, people have projected and made claims for. Um, you know, certainly, you know, people like Tony Seba at Stanford, you know, have projected that 95% of all rides by 2030 are going to be in shared autonomous vehicles. I mean, you know, that's just a, a completely ridiculous, uh, forecast. Sounds like you know, we're going to do some, some, some light rail, <laughs> some buses. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so I, you know, I think it, it's going to happen. I think it's just, it's going to, it's going to proceed at a, a little bit slower pace, you know, and I think we're going to have some more of these incidents, you know, before everything gets really well sorted out. Um, and, and the thing is, you know, the more of these incidents we have, the more it's going to hurt consumer confidence in the technology. And so even when it does get sorted out, they're going to be less likely to adopt the technology. Um, but you know, it'll, it'll happen eventually. I think, I think it's, it, it it's, it's going to be necessary to address, you know, some of the the larger societal problems that we have to deal with uh, around transportation and energy use. Yeah, and I think that, you know, to your point about consumer confidence, it's you know almost bigger than that to me. It's you know a handful of deaths are going to hurt that confidence in autonomous technology, but there's still this bigger problem that. There's 102 people on on average every day in the United States who are getting killed in car accidents, and or I should say car crashes, not necessarily accidents when you when you factor in drunken driving and, and other kind of reckless behavior. But um, we get back to that existential question of why are we comfortable with humans killing each other, uh, you know, at a rate that's going to you know exceed what machines would at some point. But but we get very uncomfortable with uh, machine caused deaths. Well, first of all, you know uh, humans are not rational, and so you know we're not we we don't <laughs> we, we tend we tend not to make decisions you know based on purely on pure logic. Uh, like you know if we can save you know ten percent of fatalities by going to automation, you know that would seem like a, a, a rational thing to do. But we probably won't do it if that's all we if that's all we have. Um, on the other hand. You know, it, I think it's it's important to also keep in mind uh, some scale and context. There's 274 million registered vehicles in the United States. We drive 3.2 trillion miles a year, um, and you know there's an average of just over one fatality for every hundred million miles of travel. By comparison, you know there's a few hundred autonomous vehicle prototypes in this country. They've accumulated roughly somewhere between 8 and 10 million miles total, and we've had one fatality. One fatality in, let's say, 10 million miles versus one fatality for every 100 million miles driven by humans. So far, we're still, we're not actually better yet. We haven't actually proved that the technology is better. I mean, I'm, I mean, obviously, that's a sample size of one, and statistically, right, that's right. not, that's not statistically significant, but the, the reality is we have not yet fundamentally proven that, that this is better than human drivers. I have no doubt that we will get there in the not too distant future, that we will prove we will validate that uh, that assumption. But 
we need we need to actually go a little farther down the road to get to that point. Yeah, I would agree with that and even say that I think we have to go a lot farther down the road. I think it was Toyota that said, you know, we're going to need to get to like a trillion miles of, of testing before we really know, like you said, our sample size right now is is small. So it, it just speaks to the overall fact that there's a, a long, arduous path ahead. Yeah. And, you know, a, a, a lot of that is going to be you know dependent on doing a, a whole lot of um, simulation testing, you know, uh, you know, Waymo, I think is doing some, something upwards of 10 million miles a day of simulation testing, uh, now. And, uh, at CES in January, uh, Jensen Wang, the CEO of, of NVIDIA, you know, was showing some of the, the new simulation capabilities that they have now using the, the graphics rendering capabilities of their GPUs, you know, they can take raw sensor data, from the from vehicles that are being tested, and then they can take those scenarios and manipulate them and create an infinite number of potential scenarios. You know, varying the lighting conditions and the weather conditions and the road conditions, and adding adding more vehicles in, uh, adding pedestrians and and other road users in into those into those simulation runs and run an infinite you know almost infinite variety of scenarios much more rapidly than we could ever do on real roads. I still hold out hope that there will be a a backlash against our machine overlords and um, we'll just decide that human drivers are where it's at. Because it's a NASA quote that I love from the 60s. It's uh, human beings are the cheapest 150-pound general-purpose computers that you can mass-produce with unskilled labor. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's brilliant. I it's love that. pretty good. <laughs> that is excellent. And, yeah, I mean, and, you know, from a conversation I had with uh, Gil Pratt from Toyota, from the Toyota Research Institute, um, you know, one of the things he, he mentioned was that, you know, the, the human brain, I think um, – you know the the power consumption of the human brain is about four watts. You know, and we that still don't so have. Efficient. And we still don't we we still don't have, you know, digital computers that can come anywhere close to, you know, general you know general intelligence that the human brain is capable of. I mean, the human brain, you know, for all of our flaws, you know, we're actually remarkably good at detecting very subtle changes and detecting a lot of nuance in the things that our senses pick up. Um, you know, because we've we've had to, you know, we've had to evolve that way to survive. You know, because in in many ways, you know, while we may be the the apex predators on this planet, in many ways we're physically inferior to a whole lot of other species. And the fact that we have survived and dominated for so long is you know, it, it's testament to what our, you know, what our brains have been capable of. I, I think I, I can't, I can't, can't argue. I think, I think we're good. Uh, you know what? Let's talk about something else. Okay. <laughs> let's, let's, no. do, oh, go ahead, Pete. No, I think that's a good, good segue away with the, uh, the great stat with the four watt usage of the human so, brain. There's so nowhere to so go we, we really are dim bulbs, but <laughs> right. you know, we're good at it. It's perfect. Um, all right. So speaking of dim bulb moves, 
perhaps. Uh, <laughs> Cadillac all of a sudden has decided they want to be in the V8 engine business again. Uh, the last time they did this was the North Star. The time before that was the HT uh, series, the HT4100. So now they're, they've come out with a, a V8 that's going to be much better than either of those, you know, and, and both of them put together. Uh, a I don't know what the designation is for it, but it's a 4.2 liter twin turbo hot V thing. It's, V8. It's yeah. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a competitor for the likes of you know Mercedes and BMW and and uh, and everybody else that's doing you know these similar kind of uh, high performance V8 engines. And it's going to um, go in their sedan. That yeah, in the CT6. Sell. Yeah, right. Seems like a terrible idea. And I mean, like <laughs> a wonderful terrible idea. <laughs> but don't you just think though? This is you know, it is probably a terrible idea. Uh, given the way the stand market is going right now uh, and everything else in the industry. But at the same time, like as Cadillac looks to establish itself or reestablish itself, you know, as a competitor to Mercedes BMW, that, that they have to have this kind of offering. I, I think it's, yeah. I mean, I think it's cool. I, I look, I love V8s and I, think it's great that cadillac has done in this dual overhead camo aluminum it has all the buzzwords and that's cool and it Fully makes, buzzword compliant yeah it makes a ton of power and that's also cool uh and they're putting it in the ct6 which i love and it's gonna make the ct6 v sport it's gonna be great and nobody's gonna buy it because everybody's buying crossovers and uh luxury suvs so it's a lot of money to sink into an engine that's going in a sedan when sedans are sort of falling by the wayside. And Cadillac, yeah, but do you really believe that the, the CT6 is the only product that's going to get this engine? Well, no, and that's my question: is like, what is what else is it going to go into? And Cadillac doesn't really have anything else they can put it in right now, at least in. Well, a- they, they don't. They don't right now, but that doesn't mean they won't. You know, because this engine isn't coming out for another year, so it comes out in the first half of 2019, and. By that time, they will have some additional new products that haven't yet been announced. You know, they have. So, they what have are they, Sam? Why don't you tell us? <laughs> well, they, they haven't they haven't told me yet either. But, they, they have they have said you know that they're going to do they're doing some more uh, utility vehicles. I mean, they've got the XT4 coming next week at the New York Auto Show, yeah, which is a compact one. That's right. But that's they're going to have, have some bigger. They're going to have some bigger utilities as well. Plus, there's a you know going to be a next generation Escalade that will probably be launching sometime in the middle of next year. And you know, the other thing the other thing to keep in mind about this is this engine is going to be built at GM's Performance Build Center, uh, which is where they build, you know, do their high performance Corvette engines as well. The Performance Build Center just happens to be co-located in the Bowling Green assembly plant that builds Corvettes. Um, and they're they're hand-built engines um, you know, by a couple of dozen technicians that you know, spend a few hours, you know, putting each one of these together, and they slap a uh, tag on it with their their signature on it at the end. Uh, but you know, if if in fact they're you know Don Sherman is right, and there is <laughs> going to be a mid-engine Corvette, which I'm still not convinced of. I still think it's you know GM's just trolling Don with some tube frame <laughs> lockups running around just for just for the spy photographers. But um, you know, Don Don has been on the on the the mid-engine Corvette kick for forty years, um, and uh, when we were at this event the other day, you know, he said, "Yeah, he's got a deposit down on a on a twenty twenty mid-engine Corvette with his local Chevrolet Chevrolet dealer." Um, but 
it would not shock me at all to see this engine in the back of a, you know, if they do a mid-engine vet, to see this engine in the back of a mid-engine Corvette with a hybrid powertrain. Hmm. That, that just sounds wrong. That's, <laughs> Why mean, not? I mean, you, you know, you got, you got hybrid, um, you know, hybrid LaFerraris and uh, uh, the Porsche 918 and the McLaren P1. And, you know, they're, you know, McLaren, you know, McLaren's next high end sports car is also going to be a hybrid. Um, you know, the, there's going to be a, a plug in hybrid version of the, the next generation 911. You know, everything's getting electrified, you know, to get those, get the power levels they want. So why not put a, put this, you know, with a, you know, add, you know, 300 horsepower of uh, uh, electric motors, you know, so you got all of a sudden now you're at 850 horsepower. Uh, with a hybrid, a twin turbo V8, what could go wrong? <laughs> I, I just think back to Dan's point, you know, that, that there's so many aspects of this that are cool. And that's, that's, you know, that, that, that could happen just based on the fact that, I don't know, I don't know, Sam, like, I don't know about the, the details, but like, theoretically, that would be a cool thing for Cadillac to do. It just, in that that big picture of of Cadillac reestablishing itself as something other than a you know more of a GM brand, like all these all these ducks seem to be aligning. Yeah, uh, you know, I think I think you know there's there's some there's I think there's still a lot we don't know about what GM's plans are, and you know I I'm, I'm glad this engine exists because I think it'll be a lot of fun to drive. Uh, but you know, given GM's, you know, Mary Barr's stated mission of zero emissions, zero congestion, and zero fatalities, you know, creating an engine like this obviously doesn't fit within that within that scope. But um, I think we're probably going to learn some other things, you know, over the course of the next year or so that might just make this, a, you know, make a little more sense with this thing. Wait, did she commit to zero emissions, zero fatalities, zero? What, what was it? Zero emissions, zero congestion, zero fatalities. That's so that's GM's mission now. Zero cars. <laughs> like that's. I, well, it has been interesting. If you've noticed, I feel like you know, with Maven in particular, they've upped their game in in terms of being more aggressive about talking about the fact that you don't need a car anymore. When when Maven launched in Toronto, probably about a month ago, I I, I think it was. Yeah, their statement said like car ownership is no longer necessary. And I had to double, you know, I had to read that a few times because I, wait a minute, this is coming from a GM brand saying that car ownership is no longer necessary. It, you know, that it, it seemed, it seemed crazy you, to me that, that they would yeah, just and, come out and say that. And, and you, you know, to, to varying degrees, we've been hearing that from a lot of automakers lately and, and we're going to hear it more going forward because, you know, the thing is, all these autonomous cars—they're not going to be—they're not going to be cars that individuals own. They're going to be you know, through mobility services. So, you know, in in urban areas, the idea of owning a car—you know—I mean, it doesn't. It's not that it makes sense today. And you know, as, as I said, you know, humans aren't rational anyway. So, uh, you know, it it makes it makes no sense to own a car in a place like Manhattan or or even Chicago. Right. You know, when you can you can get access to a vehicle whenever you need it. Right. That's very true. But, but in, people do it anyway, to your point. In other yeah. cities though, there isn't 
that public transportation or even bus routes uh, like there are in cities like Manhattan. You know, Manhattan is almost an outlier with its its subway system and public transportation is as much as people complain about it in Manhattan it's pretty good there uh it's a lot harder in in another sort of different tier of city to be carless you know Houston's certainly designed around the car Phoenix Los Angeles yeah 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 (laughs) um so you, you can't you can't make the same argument for, well, for other cities. I, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I think, you know, in this context of, you know, uh, getting away from car ownership, I think, you know, the U S is probably not going to be the leader in this, you know, we'll, we'll probably trail behind. I think we'll see, see it happening more in Europe and in Asia first. And eventually, you know, the U S will kind of mo- start to move in that direction. Um, Cause you're right. I mean, a lot of, a lot of big American cities have been designed around the car, but there's a lot of other places in the world where that's not necessarily true. Yeah. Oh, I agree with that. Um, and, you know, there's there's options too. the the right uh, the right thing is going to come along at the right time. You know, somebody's going to maybe pitch fractional ownership of luxury vehicles in the right way. <laughs> and and that's going to become the thing versus, uh, you know, owning your own car or, or, you know, something like that. And we're seeing everybody try a little little bit of a different take on it. And, and something's going to stick. Um, you know, part of the thing with, with ride sharing and this whole disruption of mobility stuff is uh, – these companies are basically undercutting actual, you know, taxpayer-funded public transportation, gutting it, and then using it as an excuse to, to sell their their sort of privatized option. You know, you look at Uber uh, again, right? It, their rides cost more than they charge. Oh, a lot more. Right. Yeah. So once private equity gets tired of paying for everybody's car rides. Either the prices are going to rise or, you know, something else is going to change or they're just going to fold up their tent. But it's going to be a few years from now. And what have they done to starve the subway system, say, in a place like Boston that is continually – it's it's the oldest in the nation and it has issues. Uh, if we don't have enough riders, we don't make enough money to pay to fix the system. So we've got to float a bond or we've got to do something else and just take the loss for a system that has declining ridership. And you can't make the business case. At a certain point, you go like, you know what? We're not going to do that. So, once they've gutted public transit, then what? Do they decide to to continue at it, or you know, are we all stuck then, and we have to again accept our new overlords? <laughs> well, I, and I think to some extent, like that infrastructure investment in public transportation, you know, has been made, and you know, although we do see it falling apart in places like Washington D.C. with their metro. Uh, you know, I, I think it'll be res- it should we get into a scenario that like the one that you just painted, like I think public transportation will be resilient. Uh, not that it doesn't have its fair share of problems. I don't think it's just going to you know evaporate one day and not not be able to reclaim territory that it may have lost in the interim. I hope so. <laughs> Um, I don't know how we got there from turbocharged V8. Yeah. What happened? I thought we were talking about cool stuff. We're, I, we're, I think we're I our experts in tangents. gave us a hard right turn with with Maven when we talked about mm. the GM uh, not you know 
not being afraid to say that car ownership is no longer necessary. Yeah. Uh, wow. We did, we did a tangent. Um, I honestly, I, I can't wait to see what else this engine ends up in. I think the CT six is going to be great, but they're not going to sell that many of it. Uh, no, I mean, they don't sell very many CT sixes now. Right. So, I mean, how much money was it? Five billion to develop an engine? One billion? Nah, uh, it's it's probably about a billion. Uh, I mean, just so nonchalant. It's just a billion. It's just <laughs> well, small money compared to what they've spent on autonomous technology over the last ten years. Yeah. Uh, that is probably small potatoes. I um because Jalopnik uh posted about how upset all the Alante owners are that um, it's the, the featured car at uh, the Concorde de Lemons this year. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and they just don't have a sense of humor. I, I uh, read a, I think it was classic and motor car, a uh, quick blurb about the Alante. Uh, it, it, GM lost like $24 billion on, <laughs> on that one car. It's like, man, the no, 80s, that can't be right. I, 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 that's what it said. And I was like, ah, that seems no. like a lot of money. Like twenty four yeah, billion no, I, seems big. I, I think I think they uh, misplaced the digi- the decimal. It might point have been twenty four million is probably okay. All right. Well, no, I mean I, I could see them losing you know a couple of billion on that program. Or so like two point four. Yeah. That's still but a 20, lot of dough. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. I yeah. So you think and, about and actually back back to the V eight. Um, you know that billion dollar figure actually is that's 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 the figure you know that's what it costs to develop and also to tool up for manufacturing of an engine you know the actual the, the tooling cost for this engine is actually going to be pretty small because it's a low volume engine and it's hand built you know they don't have to put in you know things like transfer lines for you know uh engine machining and and building that's that's where the a lot of the cost goes into is, is building all that <laughs> stuff up and you know if you're, yeah, you know, if you if you've got a low volume engine that you can machine all the parts on a CNC machine and then you know assemble it by hand, you know that that cost you know so it might only be you know two hundred and fifty three hundred million for this program, which again you know is not that, nothing but an automaker know, like trying to not nothing. yeah yeah um well I I think you're Pete you're gonna have the direct line to Don Sherman he writes for for Car and Driver so I mean. You're gonna know before any of us if he gets an advanced call about a mid-engine Corvette with this engine in it. Uh, I'll listen for a, a shout of joy coming from somewhere else in the office. Yeah. <laughs> he may just keel over. It may be like one of those things, like you know, he'll, he'll have a stroke that it's finally yeah, real, like Xanadu. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. I, I think it's going to be in the Escalade next, but that's just my thought. No, I, I think you're probably right. Escalade V Sport. That'd be okay. I, I'd take it. All right. Well, we've. I think we've obliterated a, a podcast this time. <laughs> At least. Yeah. Maybe a couple of them. Um, oh, also oh. about this engine. Speaking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you had an interview. Had a, yeah, I had a, had a short interview with Jordan Lee, who's the chief engineer on the engine, and we'll drop that in here and and. Uh, and then we'll uh, wrap up the show. 
All right. Jordan Lee, Chief Engineer for Cadillac V8. Got a, Cadillac's first exclusive V8 in what? Since the North Star, I guess. So probably much, since yeah. the early 90s. Um, so, first of all, what, what were your goals in, in developing this engine um, overall and, and for Cadillac? Yeah, uh, primarily the goals were um, trying to match all the Cadillac's requirements for elegant performance. Uh, and we talked about it earlier in the presentation, but we want elegance. Elegance means refined, responsive, uh, extremely powerful, and very intuitive. We wanted to do all of those things. So the requirements we were given, uh, we looked at a lot of different powertrains and engine options that we could use to achieve. Uh, but this particular one, you have it up there on the slide now, it, uh, we went with a clean sheet approach because we really had to emphasize the elegant, refined, powerful, and efficient. So that generated what we came up with, which is this 4.2 liter Cadillac twin turbo V8. And what, what do you see as um, the, the targets, you know, the, 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 who, who's the target market for this engine? What, what are you trying to achieve with yeah, it? Yeah, I'm going to defer to Donnie on the, the market demographics, but uh, yeah. Um, so this luxury customer um, is, is somebody who looks for refinement, um, as is the case with the CT6, is somebody who's looking to reward themselves, but break out of the status quo. With this, it's you're looking at people who want the pinnacle of performance without having to give up any sacrifice on luxury. Okay. Um, I mean, this is clearly a very tightly packaged engine. There's a lot of hardware within this within this envelope. Mm -hmm. What were what were the biggest challenges uh, for your team in developing this to, to get it to all go together and to, to stay together over the life of the vehicle? Yeah, uh, most of the engine-specific components, we have a lot of experience. And my team is really good at doing engine designs and engine component work. Uh, but the biggest challenge for us, which is a new learning, was the thermal management because of the turbos and the converters in the valley of the engine. Um, our analytical capability, I think, is extraordinary, so we had a pretty good idea what we were up against, but until we started driving cars and prototypes, we really didn't understand how much attention had to be paid to managing the heat that those turbos and the converters generate in the valley of the engine. Is, is this the first application that you're aware of that anybody's done with having the catalytic converters in the valley alongside the turbos like that? Uh, no. Uh, Audi, BMW, and Mercedes now have high D engines, and I think they also bolt their converters right to the turbochargers. Okay. Um, and you mentioned earlier the, um, the after-run cooling. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And what, what exactly are you doing there? Yeah, with the turbocharger, if you're driving the car in a very spirited fashion and you get the turbos very hot, and then you immediately turn the engine off, uh, you have no circulation of coolant or oil through the turbos. Uh, and the bearings in the turbocharger are oil-fed. Um, if you recall, long ago, Chrysler had a a turbocharged four-cylinder and, and a vehicle called the Omni, right. and uh, they suffered oil coking issues which destroyed the turbocharger. So we have to make very certain that the, the oil temperature in the turbo never exceeds a coking threshold, or else we'll, start, we'll damage the turbocharger bearings. Uh, so for this particular design, with the turbos being up high in the valley, uh, if somebody drove the car and got the turbos very hot and then immediately turned it off, we have to have an after-run fan and after-run pump that'll actually pull coolant through those turbos to dissipate the heat to get the temperatures below the, the threshold for oil coking. So you have a separate electric cooling pump Correct. that only runs after the engine shuts off? Correct. And while, while the engine's running, you're still using the, the normal belt-driven pump? Yes. Well, the engine's running, everything's fine. There's never an issue. It's when you everything's hot and toasty and you turn the engine off that you have to make sure you lower the temperature of the turbos so you don't bake the oil. So what, other, what other features are unique to this particular design? Uh, you got the, the after-run cooling. Um, yeah, the after what about the, 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 the O2 sensors 
uh, right in the uh, the catalytic converter. That actually is relatively new for us, and the industry is looking at doing more designs like that because it results in a very uh, compact uh, catalytic converter. And uh, I won't go into all the, the details of the diagnostics, but we have to diagnose that the converter is actually doing its job, and we do that with what we call a split uh, split can converter. We're actually uh, measuring the performance of the converter by running it a little bit rich and make sure this O2 sensor responds accordingly, and then the back converter actually cleans up whatever enrichment occurs to do that diagnostic. But in the old conventional sense, we had to have enough space to have two separate converters. New technology allows us to coat that converter, the front of the brick and the rear of the brick, and then we drill a hole and stick the O2 sensor in the brick itself, and we're able to do that same diagnostic but in a much more compact space. So it's right on the, the boundary line between the two halves of the, Correct. the brick? Correct. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. And it results in a very compact space. The other unique things on the engine that was a challenge was the, uh, the CACs, charger cooling, and getting enough charger cooling from a very compact charger cooler. Now, there's not a lot of hood under uh, underhood space for big uh, charger coolers, so these things had to be very efficient. And as John mentioned, uh, we can reduce the temperature by over 130 degrees Fahrenheit uh, when the things uh, when you're running in a very spirited fashion. And that's a liquid air cooler. Yes, it's a liquid air. Yeah. And uh, so, how, how much power is this engine going to produce in final form? 550 horsepower. Not too shabby. No, All it right. should be very good. Uh, and John, uh, I've made John commit before we gave the, the reviews today because once we go public, we have to deliver. <laughs> Uh, in the past, sometimes we're not certain, we're a little bit vague, and we estimate low. We didn't estimate low, okay. so we have to hit this number. Okay. All right, and, and to, to launch, this this engine is only going to be available in the CT6 V-Sport, that's correct? Correct. New model? Okay. All right, thank Thanks, you very sir. much, Jordan Lee. Welcome, All, right. All right. Pete, thank you so much for joining us this week. Thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's nice to hear more about something that's non-autonomous. So, <laughs> uh, this was this was a cool discussion. I appreciate you guys having me on. Sure, you know I want to have a, a larger role in your auto buying um, discussions. So when you're in the thick of of sort of arguing one car versus the other, especially if, if there's a spousal disagreement, you you <laughs> let me know. I will probably not be helpful. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I will I will keep that in mind. Yeah. And, uh, you know, yeah, I, I really am kind of curious to see what we wind up doing, but, uh, you know, it'll be fun however however it goes. Yeah, well, come back on when you make the purchase decision, and we'll talk about the hows, what's, and, and why's. I think that'd be a good, okay. uh, good thing. Okay, sounds to good. Excellent. All right, well, thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll uh, catch you all next time. All right, all right bye. Good night. Bye. Thanks, When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. 
Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.